welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Simon Wardley. Hi, Simon. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Absolute delight. And thank you for inviting me. We wanted to talk about Wardley Maps with you today. Could you introduce yourself and tell the audience a bit about who you are? So I'm Simon Wardley, and I'm the inventor of Wardley Maps. I've run companies, I've worked for governments, I advise large businesses, I do lots of interesting stuff in the open source world, and I speak. I speak at a lot of conferences, and I teach people how to map. So the whole story behind this was actually, I was running a company, and this was back in 2004, 2005. The company's doing very well. Revenue growing, we're being profitable. And I'm the CEO, but I, to be blunt, I was clueless. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I was making stuff up as I went along. I was terribly worried that people would rumble that I didn't know what I was doing. And so I started reading everything I could find into strategy. It was getting nowhere. Ended up in a bookshop. And the bookseller said to me, had I ever read Sun Tzu's Art of War? I hadn't. I bought two separate copies. They're all translations. And it was in the reading of the second one. I noticed a particular pattern where Sun Tzu talked about five factors, one of which was landscape. And this led me into the idea of how do I understand my landscape? And this led me on to a journey of discovering maps. I was using these maps to explain a problem. And somebody said, what are they called? And I said, well, they're called maps. They're maps. <laughs> and they were like, what sort of maps are they? And I went, oh, I don't know. Value chain maps. And somebody said, oh, no, there's something called those. All right. Strategy maps. And those, there's somebody else who called some. I don't know. Help. And so I just said, Wardley maps. There you are. And then it stuck. And I assumed there may be me, maybe a few other people, maybe my mother or somebody would use them. It would be a very small number of people. My mother's an economist, by the way. But it turned out that other people had learned how to map competitive landscapes. And so they've just grown from there. It's really difficult to explain this stuff without actually looking at a map. If we can get a map, I can take you through it. Good idea. So how about if you talk us through the high-speed rail map? So for the audience, this is at a website called wardleypedia.org, high-speed rail map. Okay, so I'm looking at this map here, and it's a sort of monstrosity of different blues and other bits and pieces. So it says top right-hand side, pioneers, settlers, town planners. There's lots of dots on it and everything else. So what we're going to do is strip it away, first of all, and then build it up. What are the axes? Before we get to the axes, I need to explain the difference between a graph and a map. So almost everything we have in business, which calls itself a map, is in fact a graph. And the way you tell this is if you take something like a mind map, if you just move any component up or down a little bit and ask yourself the question, does it change the map? The answer is no, because the map is defined by the nodes and the connections between it. Now, if I take a map of the world and I shift Australia and put it next to the UK, does that change that map? And the answer is yes. So the first thing you have to learn with a map is that in a map, space has meaning, okay? So you can't just simply move things slightly without changing the meaning of what it is. So almost everything written in business we have, which is called a map, is in fact a graph. We have very few maps. Now, in order to create a map and in order to create space to have meaning, you need at least three components. You need an anchor, such as magnetic north. You need a position of pieces. This is north, south, east, or west of that. And you need consistency of movement. So if I'm going north, I'm going north. I'm going south, I'm going south. 
So I started this off in 2005, trying to work out how to do this. And the first thing is the anchor. So the anchor that I use on a map will be the users. And those users could be the public, it could be the business, it could be the government. You can have multiple anchors on a map at any time. So if I look at this map here, they've got three different types of customer. They haven't specified what those customers are. One requiring 3D visualization, one requiring graphical information system, one requiring access to the website. Okay, so they've got three. I'm guessing this is engineers, architects. They could probably do with defining those customers a little bit more. Okay. Once you've got the anchors at the top, but now what you need is position, and you get this through a chain of needs. The customer needs a graphical information system. That graphical information system needs a project information management system, PIMS. That needs a land registry, which needs an enterprise resource planning management system, which requires a risk analysis. So what they're doing is they're basically going through and saying, this needs this. So the way to think of it is like a cup of tea, what does that need? Well, it needs a cup. It needs tea. It needs hot water. Hot water needs cold water and a kettle needs power. So you can create a chain of needs. So that's what they're doing here. And at the bottom of the chain of needs, they've got things like data center, compute, and power. Okay, so that gives you anchor and position, but now you need movement. And it turns out that all of these nodes are forms of capital. These forms of capital evolve through four common stages. Now, technically, we should call it stage one, two, three, and four, but that's not very meaningful. And those stages have labels. So if we're talking about activities, we talk about the genesis of novel and new, custom-built examples, products and rental services, commodity and utility services. If we're talking about practices, it's novel, emerging, good, and best. But as shorthand, People just put Genesis custom product commodity. So now what we've got is anchor and position and movement. I can look at this and go, the customer needs 3D visualization, needs a graphical information system, needs land registry, needs ERPM, needs risk management system, needs a platform, needs compute, needs power. And we've got power as a commodity, computer as a commodity, platform getting towards commodity, risk management more in the product stage, land registry is custom built, etc. How do you decide where to put things in the vertical dimension? The first thing to note with the map is there is no y-axis. The only reason that y-axis visible value chain exists is because in the early days of mapping, because it doesn't need a y-axis at all, people would go, "What? I can't cope, what's the y-axis? And it's just like, all right, we'll give you some scaffolding. We'll put value chain. And the further you go up the value chain, things are more visible, and the lower down, they're more invisible. But as soon as you get good at mapping, you realize that y-axis is complete gibberish, throw it away. What you actually need is the evolution at the bottom, and you're de just describing the chain of needs. So it's the evolution at the bottom, so it's a form of maturity model, is that what I heard? So it basically describes how things evolve. So if you think of a thing like compute, the first compute was 1943, the Z3, then you get custom-built systems like Lions Electronic Office, then you get the first products like the IBM 650 and a constant evolution of products until you get things like Amazon EC2, 2006, computes become a utility. So it's this common phase, the genesis of the novel and new 
custom-built examples of things, products and rental services, and commodity and utility services. So when I'm looking at this map, I immediately I'm going, right, we've got land registry, a business information management system. I'm immediately going, well, land registry, and where are we custom-building that? Surely other nations have that. Surely this is a problem that has been solved many times before. Is there something unusual about our land or whatever it happens to be? Um, there may be. But the point about the map is the person writing the map is exposing their assumptions in a form that you can now challenge by not challenging the person, by challenging the map. And that's critical. So most organizations run on what we call stories, narratives. And then we have an entire industry which runs around telling people that great leaders are great storytellers. So when you challenge somebody's story, you're actually saying you're not a great leader. And that's why it gets a lot of conflict. If I, you can get them to put a story on a map, I can challenge the map without challenging them. And a typical example of this, I had an insurance company in 2011. They had a wonderful process flow about introducing robotics to improve the speed at which they installed computes in their data centers. They had a bottleneck, and they were going to spend several million in capital expenditure to get rid of this bottleneck. It was fantastic. And, of course, they asked me to have a look. And I can't say why you're using robotics. They've spent six months. They've done all the return investment calculations and all this sort of stuff. So I said, could you quickly map it? And it took about 15 minutes. Most of that time was, I don't see why we're mapping. And then they just got on and mapped it. And the interesting thing is when you follow the map down, they put computing product. Okay, I think it's more of commodity. This was back in 2011. We need to order server and it needs to come in goods in. That's more of a commodity. And then they went, we need to modify the servers and mount and rack them. And they had rack and custom built. And I simply asked, where do you put rack and custom built? And it's because they had custom built racks. And one of the modifications you're doing to service, well, the service we buy don't fit our racks. That's why we have to take cases off them, drill new holes, add new plates to get them to fit our racks. And that's why we need robotics. And somebody in the room just went, why are we using standard racks? And these people aren't daft. There was at some point in the past, it made sense to have custom-built racks because there was no such thing as standard racks. But they had been trapped by that narrative and that story ever since. And so what they're focused on is improving process flow. And improving process flow makes perfect sense to go and spend millions on robotics to get rid of that bottleneck. But when you map it and you look at evolutionary flow, you go, what the hell are we doing? Why are we using custom-built racks? And simply by using standard racks, that saved them millions. Except for, we looked at the map and just somebody went, surely computes a utility now with cloud. Yeah, of course it is. So we don't even need racks. We don't even need the data centers. So it saved them a bucket load of money. And that was a simple 15-minute-odd discussion. My favorite example is one in government, Liam Maxwell, saved about 450 million through mapping. It's going to save about 1.5 billion. Most organizations are always shocking how few understand who the users are, the components involved in building something, how evolved those components are. And a lot of when we talk about legacy, what we're actually talking about is custom-built examples of things which became commodity long ago. And we should have removed them, but we haven't. So are you part of the Agile community? So when I was running a software company, we adopted extreme programming about 1999. One of the things I discovered pretty quickly with things like extreme programming is it's a great method. It's fantastic, but it doesn't fit everywhere. So whenever you're building large, complicated systems, 
so many different components. You actually have to use multiple different methods in order to build things effectively. So being agile means you need to use appropriate methods. So in some cases, you're going to use Six Sigma, in other cases, Lean, in other cases, Extreme Programming. If I look at this map here, what you can see, it's circled various of the components. And the ones on the left-hand side, built in-house with agile techniques, extreme programming is very good. And the reason for this is the stuff on the left-hand side, Genesis custom built, is what we call the uncharted space. Things in that space are going to change, and we don't really know what we want. Now, in the middle, where we get more to the product space, it says use off-the-shelf products and lean. Well, it's because we've got a better idea of what we want, and now we're about learning and reducing waste. Now, when it gets to the far right-hand side, and remember, everything evolves across this map, on the far right-hand side, then you're outsourcing to utility providers, or if you're building it yourself using something like Six Sigma, because what you're about is reducing deviation, because you know exactly what you want. You just want volume operations of exactly that thing, good enough, with as minimal deviation. So you've got these two extremes, which is the, the desire for deviation you need on the left, so extreme programming, because it reduces the cost of change, is good. And stuff on the right, you know exactly what you want, but you want a volume of operations, you want no deviation, and the stuff in the middle, you're all about learning and reducing waste. So you use multiple methods. And that's important to remember because there's a world of difference between using Agile. So using Agile would be like using extreme programming, which you would do here on those components on the left-hand side. And being Agile means using appropriate methods. So on the right-hand side, it means outsourcing using Six Sigma. In the middle, it means using Lean. And on the left, it means using Extreme Programming. So in this example, we're looking at, I've got some platforms like an enterprise resource management platform, a CRM, a GIS, and so on. I've had quite a lot of experience with companies implementing these, and there's always a considerable amount of customization of these platforms. Generally, about 30% of the features have to be yep. built new. About mm -hmm. 30% is customized and the rest is configured. For example, companies putting in SAP, an SAP yep. module to do their finance, are going to be spending $10 million oh. for labor and licenses. And the rest. I love this. I love this. I sat in a room with about 140 CIOs, different companies. And I, I said, okay, let's pick something. Enterprise resource planning. Who's got a big ERP system? And every single hand went up. Okay. It must be a commodity then, if you've all got it. And there was lots of, no, it's not a commodity. We have to do lots of customization, et cetera, fit our business and blah. Okay. So I asked one of the CIOs in the room, what are the customizations you're doing? And they said, all right, well, for example, we have this. And so I said, who else in the room has got this? All 140 hands up went up. And then we just started going through the list. And what it transpired is everybody in the room was customizing the same system in almost identical ways creating no differential advantage for any of them. Sure, creating huge amounts of money for the vendors and the consultants and all the rest of it. What should be a commodity? You've got self-interest parties. You've got an interest in not making a commodity. And, of course, they've all to, everybody's been telling themselves it's a you know, secret of virtues, it's differential. But the customizations are exactly the same. 
And of course, you go, why don't they do that, put that into product? They've got self-interest not to. They've got an entire ecosystem to support. So it was just like, why don't you people talk to each other? So literally, we were just going down through this list, and everybody had exactly the same thing. I think I remember we, we totted up some figures there, and it was ridiculous. You are talking many billions being spent on customizing the same system <laughs> in almost identical ways and creating no competitive advantage for anyone. And could these things be turned into a commodity? Yeah, of course they could. That's what we're seeing with the software as a service movement. Yeah. That these things are all going online and you can use them in the standard way. But I think mm-hmm. people are still configuring the software as a services quite a lot as well. Yep, you pick up the big, the Salesforce. You'd think that would be commodity, no customization, but there are some very large consulting companies making some very large amount of money customizing that out-of-the-box solution. I absolutely agree. And what is Salesforce? They're more of a rental model. They're not yeah. really a utility model. It's a rental model. And, of course, they're doing the same old product practices of encouraging people you can customize and all the rest of it. God, most of this stuff should be highly industrialized. It should be literally come out of the tin, all done, pre-baked, everything else. You can bet your bottom dollar that people are customizing it in identical ways and being encouraged to do so. I had one organization, gosh, they were running around government department. So this is lifeboats, rescue, police or ambulances all have an issue of you've got resources, you've got an incident, you've got to get those resources to the incident. And so it requires you to map it out, or the geographical maps in this sense, where things are and all the rest of it. But it's the same problem. But you get this one company going through 40-odd lifeboat agencies selling identically the same system, customized for every single one, at huge cost. And it's the same customizations. It's shocking. So this is also why some of the things that Amazon does, because Amazon just brutally focuses on industrialization. It's just, we're going to take the stuff, which is a product, and turn it into a utility. And we need more of it. In my state in Victoria, the mm-hmm. government spent $330 million customizing a train and bus ticketing system. And they chose a system because it had already been done in Hong Kong. And then they spent 330 million customizing it i've got to say the worst duplication i've seen ever in government is actually to do with prisoner registration where we managed to build prisoner registration systems about 118 different ways how many times do you have to rebuild that this is nothing compared to the level of waste i've seen in the private sector one very big pharma company had 350 teams building enterprise content management systems and five global efforts to build the global enterprise content management system, none of which were talking to each other. Now, you think of that, no, can't get worse than that. Oh, you can. Just go into the banking world. Just look at risk management system. We stopped counting in one particular place once we got over a thousand risk management systems and they're forever complaining they can't innovate. And you go, if you're going to keep on rebuilding the wheel in slightly different shades of blue, yeah, I'm not surprised. So obviously there's a lot of vendor interest in this because that's all money to people. If you think about the Hong Kong example there, you have to ask, why is the government talking directly to the Hong Kong government if it's a nationally owned system 
And that's why it's encouraging to see lots of open efforts and lots of collaboration between governments. And we started to see this with UK Gov. One of the things I helped write was something called the Better for Less paper back in 2010 for Francis Moore. And this led to the introduction of things like spend control, supporting something called government digital services, which was created subsequently. And so there was a big sort of focus on use of open and collaborating with others, A, to get more information, to share that information, stop rebuilding stuff, which is a already been done. I think that you just have to grab a couple of thousand developers, put them in a room and ask who's built a user login system. And everybody's hand goes up. You say, right, how many people have built it more than once? And most of the heads say, yes, they are. So in a single room, you'll get the same system having been rebuilt thousands and thousands of times. There's so much waste there. Yeah, and I agree. I've got a startup and we had to do the user login system. So we adopted Google's authentication because you click on it, it comes up, it does the work for us. They're much smarter. They've got much better machine learning models than we would ever build for identifying where you are. I've just come back from the UK and every time I logged onto a new service in the UK, Google came up and said, hey, you're looking a bit weird. I need to check that it's still you. And that was interesting. And the gov.uk is an interesting one for me. So in New Zealand, we adopted a government marketplace. The boffins over here saw the UK one and then decided to build their own. For oh shame! To a hundred millions yep. of dollars, rather than just adopt the one that was built for the UK government, that was open source and pretty much fit for purpose <laughs> for a country of our size. Quick question on the map, though. So, is that where you see the Woodley the Woodley maps used a lot? Is to map out the estate of an organisation around their systems, and then the goal being moving from left to right and identifying the step change that we need to take to move each one of those things further. So the first. First point with a map is getting everybody to focus on, number one, who the users are and what their needs are. The second part of the map is understanding the components, i.e. the supply chain, whether it's a physical or whether it's a digital supply chain, is it material? But it's understanding what components go into making that. So that's understanding what we need. The next part is, of course, understanding how evolved those components are, because the methods and techniques we're going to use, whether it's project management, whether it's Pioneer Settler Town Planner, that's an organizational model that I put in place in 2006, because what we discovered was you've got some very good engineers in the uncharted space where there's a lot of change going on, some very good in the learning space, and some who are very good at industrialization. You need brilliant people in all three. And so you've got different attitudes. So what you learn by putting that evolution stuff in is that you need different methods and potentially different attitudes, and that leads to different ways of organizing as well. The other thing then you start learning is you've got duplication. So the maps help you start going, why are we building this over here when we've got it over here? And so you start building profile diagrams. And once you start doing that, then you start discovering why most of our contracts are flawed. So if I take that HS2 map that you had, if you imagine we said we're going to outsource the whole lot, I can tell you that contract's going to fail because the stuff on the right we can define, the stuff on the left we can't. So obviously we're going to get massive change control cost overruns because the stuff on the left is going to change. So you you realize that most contract structures are flawed. And then, of course, then you've got the issue that people are improving the process flow by looking through the lines in the map. And, of course, things have evolved. And so you've got evolutionary flow. So other than the fact that most people don't think about users, don't actually understand their needs, don't actually understand the supply chain, use the wrong methods, use the wrong contract structures, focus on process flow rather than evolutionary flow, don't actually organize themselves and massively duplicate, 
everything's hunky dory in IT. So as we look to move the nodes right over time, yeah. What I think I'm hearing is within the evolution model you've got in there, so within that idea of custom built versus product versus yeah. commodity, mm-hmm. there's a concept of jumping the chasm at each time, isn't there? So if oh. I was moving something in the commodity area slightly, the techniques okay. I'd use will be very different than if I'm trying to jump from a custom built evolution across the chasm to product. It, it's a bigger jump, it's riskier, I have to use different techniques than oh, moving yeah. within the evolution column. So there's a Dangerous trap here. Diffusion is not the same as evolution. So let me explain why it's a dangerous trap. If we start with something which is novel and new, the genesis of something like compute and then custom built examples and then products and then rental services, what happens is you've got many instances of that evolving thing. So many different constantly improving products. Each one of those runs on a diffusion curve. So the evolution of something usually encompasses hundreds, if not thousands, of diffusion curves. And this creates a big problem. So something's in product stage, late product stage. You get the vast majority of the market using that late product. But it's evolved to more of a utility. And so the utility version, though it's the more evolved, has early adopters on it. You can't avoid evolution. We're going to go there. But if you do CIO surveys... And this is the sort of stuff I saw in 2008, 2009, 2010, and asked CIOs what the future was. They told you it's all about virtualization in the data center. It's all about VCE. It's all about building more data centers, getting more efficient equipment. And you can look at the map and say, no, it's not. It's all about using cloud. But they turn around, they can look at all the other people in on their space on their diffusion curve using the products and say, everybody's using it. Everybody's building data centers. That stuff over there is just for startups, which is what they said. But you can see from the map, it's the more evolved form. It's unavoidable. And there's reason for this efficiency, speed, and access to new sources of value. So be very careful with the chasms and the diffusion curves because they're great. But just remember the evolution of something involves hundreds, if not thousands of diffusion curves each with their own chasm, and it can cause problems if you mix those up. Does everything inevitably evolve to a commodity? If there is competition, so supply and demand competition, it will drive there unless there are specific constraints, physical constraints or informational constraints preventing it getting there. If you want to go the other way, just get rid of supply and demand competition, create a monopoly, and then you can manipulate the market in any way you wish to. Is there anything further to the right after commodity? Oh, now the maps themselves deal with the space of competition. So there's, because they're driven by supply and demand competition. There's three basic forms of competition. One is conflict, one is collaboration, another is cooperation. So competition is the act of groups seeking something. And we can either do that by fighting each other, conflict or working together, cooperation or laboring together, collaboration. The maps deal with that space. They're a window into that particular space. Before the maps, you've got things which are not governed by competition. So you've got things with social value. And after the map, you've got things with social value as well. So decommodification. So you can think of it like it becomes a commodity and eventually we go, ah, right, government, we need to turn it into a public utility. And so it's no longer governed by the rules of competition. It's governed by a whole bunch of different rules, political rules. 
we reference that on the map by highlighting something and just saying it's become a public utility. But we can't tell you much about that space because it's outside the boundaries of competition. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So when I'm looking at this example here of the high-speed rail map, it looks to me like what it's doing is helping you to think about all the different components of your solution that you might put together yeah. And it's helping you to say which ones are really customized and which ones are not. So instead of building my own data center, because Amazon Web Services already has and, and Microsoft ones and so on, we don't need to build our own. But I do need to build my own land registry and my own business information management system because that is very specific to me and my government department. It allows you to express the assumptions that you've got around a space and right. which allows other people to look at it and challenge those assumptions. And that's exactly what happened here. They actually ended up with a much more complicated map than this. Originally, this is for building HS2 in a virtual world because it turns out that it's easier to dig up a virtual world and go, whoops, we've got that wrong. It's a lot cheaper to do that than the English countryside. They built this system, they start off with a systems graph for building HS2 in a virtual world, turned it into a map, and used the map to manage the project. And this project ended up in front of the Public Accounts Committee because it ended up way ahead of schedule, way under budget, which was pretty unusual for a government project. And James Finley was the CIO who was in charge of this. And then they started using mapping in other parts of the IT function there. Unfortunately, they didn't use mapping for the whole railway. I say unfortunate because it's a very expensive project. But they used it for building HS2 in a virtual world. But fundamentally, yeah, you are exposing your assumptions. It allows other people to look at the assumptions you're making, question them, ask about why is land registry custom built? And in this case, they use the map to think about well, some of this stuff should be more commodity. Maybe we should open source some of this stuff. Maybe drive some of this stuff in more of a commodity. Maybe we should divide the contracts up in a different way from what they originally had envisaged. Surely there must be a thousand land registries out there in the world. You'd hope so. So the point about this is the maps opened up those conversations. A bit like the map for the insurance company, which had a rack and custom built enabled somebody to go, why have you got custom-built racks? These people weren't daft. They were just trapped by narrative and trapped by stories. And, of course, if you're doing a process flow, you've got none of that information. You can just see, like, thing goes into a rack. We've got a bottleneck. Let's improve the bottleneck. Process efficiency. Once you map it, they just go, why are we doing this? When you put up a map like this with a room of people, they're making their assumptions visible, as you said. Mm-hmm. But there's still assumptions, and those assumptions might be wrong, and they wouldn't know. That's the point about you put the map up. You allow other people to challenge. In fact, so a couple of things you need to know about a map. All maps are imperfect representations. Yeah. Secondly, they're all built on models, so they're all wrong. So they're all imperfect, and they're all wrong, but they turn out to be useful because you can put your assumptions down in a way that others can look at it and go, look, I'm looking at your map. And I'm seeing that you've got compute being a commodity. You've got data center being more of a product. Exactly. Fine. So what are we going to do? Are we going to build a data center? No. Or are you going to build computers? Are you t- you're just going to use Amazon? Right. Fine. Okay. Land registry. You've put land registry in custom built and say we're going to build it with Agile. Okay. That's good. 
Don't others have land registry? Surely land registry should be over at the commodity. Can we not go, okay, fine. What What's happened is we've got consultants running around selling custom-built examples everywhere. No one's built the, there is no. Maybe you should go and talk, work with a few other governments because land registry must be a common problem and see if we can't create standardized version between multiple governments. It's a bit like student registration. How many times do we need to build that? So I can start taking out the components and asking those questions. Now, it's really difficult to do that in narrative form. If you imagine the story to try and describe this, it becomes really difficult to challenge the story. And of course, you'll challenge what somebody says. And of course, we have this industry saying, great storytellers, great leaders. So it's easier to do it with a map. I think partially this is due to the process we use to come up with solutions. Maybe that's the cause of it. I know working in software and product development for a long time that People will always start by saying, who's the customer? What's the outcome? What are the requirements? And then they brainstorm all the requirements. And then they go to the architects and say, what's the solution? And the architects come up with all the solution. Nobody has thought about cost during this process. There's no design to cost happening. When you look at a map, it is saying about what the users, the user needs, and what the components are, etc. So it forces you to think along those lines. Now, when I used to run a software company, I used to get these companies coming up to me and say, we want to build this. How much is it going to cost? And 2004, 2005, we'd actually converted our entire data center into a virtualized environment. We had something which was not dissimilar to EC2 in terms of you could spin up machines through an API. We'd actually built a platform as a service offering called Zimkey, which was serverless, but it was back in 2005, 2006. Because of our efficiency, I was using this to introduce something called worth-based development. So companies would come to me and say, we want to build stuff. And I said, well, that's great. We'll build it for free. And they'd go, what? But I want us to agree a metric of value, an outcome, not an output. An output is like uh, you get the, the product. I'm not interested in that. We want an outcome, a metric of value, and we'll take a percentage of that. So the more value you get, the more value we get. We'll build it. We'll do the risk calculations and everything else. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. That's a couple of times we did this, the rule issues i can go through that it was quite funny but most of the time people say oh no we just want a cost for the project and it was just like what a metric of value oh we don't know okay why do you want a cost for the project and i had to badger and it got down to they wanted a cost of the project so they could put in an roi calculation to work out how big the market needed to be put the business case together to support what the executive wanted to do so basically they were just collecting information just to support what the executive had already decided to do. And it was like, do yeah. you use marketing to challenge that decision? No, we're going this way. The executive decided we need whatever it is. You see it today with people going, we need AI. We're going to install AI. AI is the future. Do you have a map of the space? Do you know where AI might? No, no, but we're going to do it. And it's So when we start coming from companies think about outcome, they think about needs, they think about components, they think about business value. No, they don't. So, sounds a lot like uh, people implementing Agile, right? I want to implement Agile, not I want to change the way I work to achieve some other benefit. The benefit is supposedly Agile, and it's, that's not quite right because you need to get business change and business value, and Agile may help you do that, but it's an enabler. It's not a thing. 
So if I go back to that building ACS2 in a virtual world map, use extreme program, left-hand side. Use Six Sigma on the right-hand side. Now, being agile means using multiple methods. Using agile is using extreme programming where it's appropriate. And people get this wrong and they talk about, we want to be agile. Okay, fine. But that means you're going to use methods which aren't agile because they're more appropriate. Didn't ANZ go on some sort of big crusade? We're going to be agile everywhere. And as it ended up in a complete... Horror show. It's funny you should say that because there's just been some articles on LinkedIn around some people's view that the ANZ Bank didn't deliver their goals that they stated when they went down their scaled agile program. Oh, did they use safe, did they? I know something of the inside story to this from gossip oh, within the this. consulting industry. <laughs> so, new CEO needs to do new things to make his stamp, needs to cut costs and improve service and all that sort of thing. Talking to various people, a lot of people saying you should do Agile because that's a popular thing. And I got Boston Consulting Group in and they said, we can cut your cost dramatically by implementing Agile. They set up a target of a reduction of 25% of their management on the basis that their bureaucracy in Agile is much more streamlined. And so then they implemented the Spotify model and SAFE because the big consulting firms don't really understand any of this. They don't really have any practical experience. They just produce packs and the bank paid them vast amounts of money and they came up with new organization designs and then implemented it with a target of firing 25% of their managers. Do you know who doesn't use the Spotify model? Yeah, it's Spotify. We had Spotify. They, they said it was an ideal. But anyway, it's true that Agile as an organizational system, should be able to make you less bureaucratic. But doing it overnight like that is not the way to do it. So everybody said after it happened, it was just chaos and there was lots of work for other consultants to come and try and fix it, which was good for them. But ANZ is getting a lot of criticism for not being more effective in the loan area. And the loan area was the main area they did not implement Agile. So it's actually just very political. People are trying to push the current CEO out and get a new one. So that's really what's going on. If anybody wants to sync them, just encourage them to go bimodal. And have you heard of bimodal? I presume that's a big horror story. So back in 2004, if I go back to that, you know, that HS2 map is from 2011 2012 it's somebody else's map but back in 2003-4 with my own organization I didn't have mapping but I realized there was something wrong with the way we structured so I actually split the organization into two parts basically future focused and, and more core services and that almost collapsed the company I'd previously built cell structures and then I made this division It always collapsed the company, caused absolute warfare, because what I failed to realize is there are the extremes, but there's the transition in between, which is why when I had maps in 2005, we introduced 2006, the pioneer settler town planner model, and that stuff has picked up. So what you have are people good at creating the novel and new and failing a lot and everything else, and then brilliant people who can take that and turn it into something useful. And then you have the people who can take that, and they still from that industrialize it into common components. Because otherwise you have these two extremes, they're too far apart, 
And you have these people building the novel new and they go to the people on the other side and say, turn that into a utility. And they go, where's the documentation? We haven't built any in this big fight argument. Everybody ignores each other and it causes all sorts of problems. So this was a known problem in 2004. And of course, we had the solution by 2006. So in 2011, I just couldn't believe it when Gartner came out saying bimodal. That's because the big consulting companies were selling it. There'll be something better. (laughs) Public-private partnerships are still quite popular. That was a big money maker. <laughs> I just wanted to go back to what I said earlier because I don't feel like we really covered it. But when we are developing software or implementing SAP or whatever, every organization, yeah. they do have, we don't want to spend more than X and we want yeah. to achieve certain things. But after they say that, then they forget all that and yeah. they immediately go into, just go and ask everybody what they want, write it down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and then ask the technical people to design a solution to give everybody what they want without any idea of cost. And Mm -hmm. they come up with things that they would like to use, may or may not be commodities. But because nobody has really looked at it from your point of view, like if you said, okay, there's all these things, there's all of these commodity services you could use, then you could say, let's structure our requirements and our solution around that because we know that it's going to be much lower cost. There is a way of developing software which just says we don't even discuss cost until we are already defined everything we want. And by that time, it's all highly specific to us. The missing bit is value because it doesn't matter how much it costs as long as it creates more value than the actual cost itself. The problem is we don't often know what the cost is, and we certainly don't understand the value. So we don't have the chain. We don't go from the point of view of here's the user, here's the user need. And because when you think about that chain, what you've actually got is each of the lines are actually exchanges of capital. So if you think about a cup of tea needs a tea cup water, you've got exchanges of capital, as in the cup of tea's got value because we've combined tea with hot water with a cup. And the hot water comes from cold water and cattle needs power. So you can actually trace up flows of capital within a system. And so what you need are the two things. You need to be asking, what's the cost of this change? And what value is it actually going to give us? If you did that, most of those customizations would probably disappear. Now, there is a place where that's going on. Uh, So 2014, the runtime, uh, LAMP.net, all this sort of stuff, shifted to more of a utility, which we called serverless, uh, which is Lambda. One of the beauties about Lambda is we have that concept of billing per function. So for the first time, when you build an application, you can actually start to look at where money is going within the application. Most people, their application runs in a cloud. They can get a generic value of the total cost, not cost per function, or they've got it in their data center, in which case they haven't got a clue. You just ask people, what's the cost of that particular function? And they have no, no idea. They don't have the metrics or anything. You ask them what's the overall cost, they still don't know. But you get this for free, basically, in the service world, you get billing per function. So now we're building systems where we can actually look at capital flow. And there's a whole practice developing around this, which is called FinOps. So if you start mapping out systems, we said about computing going from Z3 to product to a utility. As things cross that boundary from product to utility, then you start to get a new set of practice. So with compute, we went from high mean time to recovery to low. So we went from a world where it took weeks to get a machine to seconds. So now we could distribute systems designed for failure, chaos engines, and we got DevOps. 
And the same is going on the runtime space where we've shifted from product to utility. So it's a new set of characteristics. One of those is visibility over actual capital flow, and we're getting an entirely new set of practices. I use that map because I used to run strategy for a company called Canonical. They provide Ubuntu. And so I use that map to attack the cloud space in 2008 we were 2 to 3% of the operating system market up against Microsoft and Red Hat. It cost half a million, took 18 months, and we took 70% of all cloud computing. So if you were involved in computing in 2008 to 2010, you might have noticed it was basically all Red Hat, Microsoft, and then suddenly it was Ubuntu everywhere where you were mapped. Strategy is iterative. That worked in 2008 to 2010. Now, you wouldn't attack that space because now the runtime has shifted to a utility the place to focus is on serverless and the FinOps. Everything below that is now heading towards the new legacy, including DevOps and cloud. Mm. If you started a cloud project and DevOps project today, well, I took my friends at Netflix, what, eight years to get rid of their data centers? By the time you completed 2030, you've just built the new legacy because everything's shifted to serverless and FinOps. So one of the things you use maps for is also not only anticipation where to attack, but also thinking about how that change forces your strategy to change as well. Did I answer your question about the cost and the value? A strong theme we've had from guests on the podcast is that we really need to focus on outcomes and the value of those outcomes and hardly yeah. anybody does. And the reason is because the managers making the decisions are too inward looking and too focused on their own campaign <sighs> against the guy in the office next door. If you look at that map of HS2, building HS2 in a virtual world, the thing about that map is there's a lot of components in there, and we can have a lot of good discussion about how we should build things, how things are changing, and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of complicatedness and a lot of complexity exposed in the map. And that's a problem. And the reason why it's a problem is something called Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety. So in a controlling element of a system, you have to have as much complexity in the controlling element as there are the inputs and outputs of what's being controlled. And so when it comes to management, there are two ways of doing this. You can either make management capable of coping with the complexity of what is being managed, or you can pretend that what is being managed is simple. And we do the pretending one through what are known as KPIs. So we introduce these wonderful things called KPIs and pretend that somehow they embed reality. In fact, what they're doing is they're making something easier to manage because now I have to just look at one figure. It's like the chat bit when there was the Chernobyl disaster and there was the person inside saying, no, the power plant's running. I'm looking at the dial. And his friend is outside saying, no, I can see it's blown up. So we tend to not look at reality. We tend to look at the dial and we manage by KPIs. I think we've got too much focus on that. We train layers of managers to constantly search for the ultimate dial, the ultimate KPI. Everybody's looking to optimize locally, if you look at it from a systems point of view. Without understanding the space, yeah. Without understanding the system that they're in. Yeah. When we talk about the evolution scale, yeah. you mentioned that there were two. So there's the one we've seen around custom build, and then there's the novel emerging good and best. And okay. so from what you said, I'm inferring that the novel emerging good and best is for services-orientated maps, okay, and the other okay. one's for 
technology right. ones. Do I get that right? Not quite. Okay. And that's not your fault. That's my fault. Yep. The evolution axis really should say stage one, two, three, and four. That's what it should say. Because you're, what you're talking about is the evolution of capital. And there's something called the cheat sheet, which describe all the characteristics of stage one, two, three, and four. But that all came from text analysis. And it turns out there are labels which are good for describing different forms of capital in those stages. So if we talk about the capital activities, things we do, the labels of Genesis custom-built product rental commodity utility fit. And so that's what we use, the labels at the bottom. If we're talking about practices, the labels of novel, emerging, good, and best fit. If we talk about data, then it's like a model divergent, convergent, modeled fit. If we're talking about knowledge, it's concept, hypothesis, theory, and accepted fit. If we're talking about ethical values, then we get concept, divergent, convergent, accepted fit. All of them are stage one, two, three, and four. And the point about this, on a single map, because I map things like cultural systems, nation-state systems, all this sort of stuff, you can map activities, practices, data, knowledge, ethical values, all, all on a single map. But rather than putting the entire list of labels down the bottom and not putting stage one, two, three, and four, because that's meaningless, we start just getting Genesis custom product commodity. And occasionally I will bring the other labels in, so I might go Genesis concepts and a custom-built and diverging product and converging, and then maybe commodity stroke accepted so i'll bring multiple labels in just if it makes it easier to read a map when i started with this mapping just thought this is what you learn how to do at mbas and i'd never done an mba i teach at multiple business schools now uh, which is just so for me so weird and i thought this was simon's cheap and cheerful way of mapping out the space obviously other people have much better ways of doing it and it took me at least five or six years of sitting in rooms and going this and people going what's that it's like being a carpenter and you've gone and made a chair and somebody's looking and saying, what's that it's a chisel what's a chisel what do you mean you don't know what a chisel is? How do you make things without a chisel? And after about five or six years, I started to really realise this must have been about 2011, 2012. People aren't looking at the landscape. Again, it was just like this really bizarre moment. And this stuff has exploded. It's all creative commons. Help yourself and everything else. There's conferences. So there's like MapCamp. There's just one MapCamp Germany. There's MapCamp London coming up. There's conferences. There's people who have written books, Amazon Web Services. Their second ever book is called Reaching Cloud Velocity. It's got 17 pages of mapping in there. They have one of my old models, the ILC model, which is basically how they rip up industry after industry. You've got some new books coming out, Liberty Mutual, a Use of Serverless. Dave Anderson's got a book coming out, which is full of maps. And then you've got Flow Book by James Urquhart. That's maps. So uh, there must be a dozen. Eric Sean's got lots of books with maps out. There must be a dozen or more. There's just loads. The UN's Global Data Strategy book has maps all the way through. And there's a huge community. They've built Wikipedias. They've built awesome list.wardly maps. They've built tools. It's just amazing. Absolutely amazing the things they've done and what they share with others. It's just spectacular. But we're all still learning. All right, summary. So I've heard of Wardley Maps, but I had no idea what it was. So for me, what I got from it was it's really a way of sharing a story, right? It's a shared language. 
It's a way of bringing something up and then having a discussion around it. It allows us to challenge the map, not the person. So it gives us permission to validate the assumptions without attacking the person that wrote those assumptions down. I thought that was valuable. And it also seemed a good way of identifying duplication. Putting the nodes on there five different times in five different places is going to start a conversation about why. What's the context for that? Is it just the way we used to work or is there really a good reason why we should be operating that way? For me, that bottom axis seems like a maturity mapping exercise so as we move from left to right depending on how far we're moving and how fast we want to move we have to pick up different ways of working to make that move so you talk about lean versus six sigma versus some agile techniques so that was me murray what do you got you should go and do this on your own startup shane so yeah i'm definitely going to go and apply this in a couple of ways and see what happens so one around where we see ourselves in the market and where we're moving to but also the agile data ways of working looking at the practices that we share with people if you're a data team and saying okay how would i broadly map it to talk about that so yeah i have to do some more reading some more practicing and some more giving it a go and see what happens it certainly explains why every new concept like data mesh becomes a product and then after that becomes a service. There's a strong commercial pressure to turn a consulting idea, which is very custom, into mm-hmm. a product which can be sold at high volume for high revenue and much higher profit margin, at mm-hmm. least initially. And then as everybody gets into the space and the profit margin drives down, there's a strong incentive then to move in, into a software as a service model, which is more economical and brings the profit back. So. It's a good explanation of how things become commodified over time. And I agree with you, Shane, about how it's a very good discussion tool and problem-solving tool. This is a really good tool that I can add to discuss problems with people and to talk about what's going on and where the assumptions are. I think it's very effective way of thinking about when you're buying solutions buy versus build type of discussions. I could see that being very useful. I think what you're saying about focusing on value and outcomes is really important and people don't do that enough. And then putting the cost against it as well, really important. Everything just gets turned into deliverables and contracts. And Mm -hmm. it's a big weakness in procurement. I have to defend procurement here because it's not just project management, it's also financing as well. So once you start mapping, you start to discover that on the left-hand side, you need to break things down into small components and use a much more VC approach. And then you're using much more off-the-shelf and then much more utility-based pricing. So your financing, your procurement methods, your project management methods need to change as the thing evolves. Yeah. And the problem is because we don't show people how to look at that landscape and how to consider things evolving, if you don't have that, but all you have are graphs, it's very difficult to, how are you supposed to work that out? If I'm normally looking at some sort of a systems graph and I look at a component, it's just, what are the cues? Where is the information telling me how I should manage this? And of course, once you start mapping it, you start to realize, hey, look, this is how evolved we think it is. So that's going to impact how we manage it. And also it's going to change. It's going to evolve. So the methods of managing it later on will not be the same as now. Yeah. I really like it as a collaborative decision-making tool, as a way of surfacing assumptions and discussing them. I think that's really good and I'm going to start using it now. 
Oh, well, do tell me how you get on. And, and do tell me any horror stories as well, where it fails, where it didn't work, all that sort of stuff. And limits are such an important thing to understand yeah. what the constraints, what are the failures of the system. And also remember, all maps are imperfect. They're all models. They're wrong. It's only a way of discussing, as you pointed out. All right. Now, you mentioned a few places where people can go and find out more information. So there's wardleypedia.org. That's, that's a community effort. I've actually written an unfinished book. It's about 600 pages long. That's all free. There are a number of published books. Reaching Cloud Velocity is one by AWS. There's a new one coming out with Dave Anderson, which is all about the flywheel effect. There's James Urquhart's The Flow. There's also a community hub. So list.wardleymaps maintained by the community, and it has links to videos and people have training courses, and it lists some of the reading and books in there. So you can see it's got Reaching Cloud Velocity in there. The Art of Strategy is also by Eric Sean. It's also got links to courses you can do. Then there's people like Ben building courses, Learn Wardley Mapping. He runs little courses on this. I just use it as a tool for my research that I do. And then there's things like mapcamp.co.uk. There are actually many different Slack groups. So you've also got things like Mapcamp. So this is a virtual conference where people from all over the community come together. And this year they're talking about Oh, there's a whole range of speakers, lots of interesting issues from what sort of financial system can support humanity best. And so they're using mapping to look at that problem, to look at mapping and healthcare. That's an interesting one. They did some work on sexual health in Brazil, the use of mapping for that, and also looking at mapping healthcare systems as well. It's all sorts of different fields, all sorts of different people as well. So I think that's a starting point. There's a lot of resources there. That's great. It's all Creative Commons. The community is amazing. They're incredible people, very kind, and I find them wonderful. And I also do research projects as well, and that's all Creative Commons. So there's a number of tools out there for building maps. One of them I use a lot is online Wardley Maps. When you open it, it'll just be blank. You'll see there's something called Example Map, and it just shows you, and you can actually code the map itself. There's several others coming in along this sort of line as well. And so what I do is I build maps in there and I store them in GitHub. My GitHub repository, if you're interested, I've got 12 research groups looking at everything from agriculture to construction to defense to finance to government. Those maps are all open. That's what we're working on at the moment. Very nice. Excellent. Thank you very much, Simon, for coming on. It's been great. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been a delight. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.